Let's turn to Romans chapter 11, and we're at verse 25. We're going to go through to the end of the chapter. Uh, that's the wrong one, I think. That's, I must have put the wrong one up, because if, if there's one there for verse 25, Stephanie, otherwise it doesn't matter. Um, that's probably me having a senior moment when I was... But we'll read from verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We'll just uh, look at those verses first of all before we go on to the rest. Now, one of the things that uh, I had been told for many years, I believe for many years, that Romans 11 was a very, very difficult chapter. And yet, having looked at it and and studied it, and as we've been looking at it in the past uh, couple of weeks, It strikes me that if you take it in the context of the whole of Romans, it's not too difficult because Paul is answering the question, how are Jews and Gentiles saved and why are so few Jews, at that time he's saying, why are so few Jews, uh, why have they not become Christians? And in answering that, he talks about God's election, he talks about the purpose of what would happen to Israel, and here... He makes really quite an astonishing prophecy. So we are going to look at that. But I I want to begin in terms of this idea of the mystery in verse 25. I think sometimes we want to despair. I don't know if you've ever had any sense of despair. And I don't mean in a trivial sense. I don't mean like uh, Scotland beating England 38-31 after one of the greatest comebacks ever in the history of the world and you're thinking it's Scotland we're going to lose a try in the last minute we didn't we lost it in the last five seconds Uh, well that's fine it was great to watch that or Dundee playing Celtic today and they survive until the six minutes of extra time I'm not bitter but how come Celtic get six extra minutes never mind and they lose a goal in the last minute as well and I just despair I give up if you're I, I That's a certain kind of despair. But there are other despair, which is just really just a darkness that overwhelms your spirit. Um, I I didn't want to read and haven't particularly read much about the New Zealand massacres because it's just horrendous, the thought of someone going into a mosque and just shooting people because of their religion. It's just, uh, just horrendous. But then we think it's not just in New Zealand. I wonder how many of us know that 120 Christians were killed in Nigeria in the past week. 10,000 Christians have been killed in the past four years in Nigeria just for being Christians. And sometimes you despair at the world. You despair at the evil. I started watching the documentary about Michael Jackson leaving Neverland. Halfway through it, I just gave up. Because it's just so depressing, uh, the state of the, the human race. And there's just so much. Um, I love, I'm a strange person, I love watching 
Parliament TV and things like that. And I gave up with that too this week. I was just thinking, oh, I'm in despair. What am I going to do? You know, um, and you just think, what's wrong with the world? And then sometimes we despair at ourselves. And I think that's possibly the worst kind of despair. We may despair at the church. Uh, we may despair at ourselves, just at, at our own sinfulness and our own stupidity. And did I really say that? And why did I do that? What's wrong with the world? We can, we can list it because the Bible lists it. Anger, blaming others, shaming others whilst signaling our own virtue, selfishness. But maybe pride is uh, uh, as much a sin that's causing so much devastation everywhere in our own lives, in church and elsewhere. And what Paul is doing here is he's dealing with the sin of pride. Because he's saying to the Gentile Christians, don't be proud that God has grafted you in. We saw that the last time. And he's talking about this mystery. He's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. But he's, he's explaining things. And he's, you know, there, there, there's something wrong with Christians who know Christ and who have good theology, but have an arrogance and disdain for other people. There's a wee video on YouTube just now. Uh, some guy who's just come out with a book, a, a guy who's into Reformed theology. And his book about is how people who are into Reformed theology are often very proud and arrogant and dismissive of other people. And actually that's true. You see that sometimes. You see, well, our, our theology is better. And we've got a better understanding. But pride goes with it and it doesn't... Paul is saying... That's not right. That's not what should happen. We are knowing God's plan should not make us proud. It should have the opposite effect. In fact, what truth should be, truth should be the antidote to pride. And I think if, if our world had more truth, then it would cause human beings to be more humble. So... He begins by talking about God's plan, and he talks of it as a mystery. Now, the word mystery is not, in, in biblical terms, a kind of esoteric secret, something that you've got to uncover yourself. But in biblical terms, the idea of mystery is, this is God revealing this. This is what God has revealed. And he's revealed this wonderful plan. I was at the... Uh, redeemed Church of God, Open Heavens. I love that name. Uh, this this morning, and it was uh, a very interesting experience. Not least, singing a song which had the lines praising God for being an extraordinary strategist, which I've I've never heard that sung before. And I thought I hate strategy, but if anyone's going to do strategy, the Lord. And I thought, well, that's actually that's pretty sound. An extraordinary strategist, um, because it's God's plan, not our plan. So what's his plan? Well, Paul here makes a prophecy. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And he uses a prophecy from the Old Testament to make a prophecy about what's going to happen both to Jews and Gentiles. Now I do want to say something about prophecy because I think that helps us understand. 
There's a phrase that Hodge uses where he says, prophecy is not proleptic history. Okay, what does proleptic mean? I had to ask that as well. Some of you may be language that you use all the time. What that means is this. It's not designed to give us a knowledge of the future. Prophecy is not designed to give us a knowledge of the future, which history gives us of the past. So I like reading history books. And I might read a book about the Battle of Stalingrad, and it will tell me what happened. Prophecy is not God telling us the history of the future. It doesn't give us the details. Now, um, incidentally, history should be telling us a knowledge of the past. I said that, but often today it's just been turned into philosophy. So people have their ideas, and then they read that back into the past, and then they just make it up. I think it's a really good thing for us to know our history but too, people, too often people start with theories and their ideas and then read them into the past. Well, that's not what we should do and that's not what happens in terms of prophecy either. What prophecy does, it tells you what God's plan is, it tells you the great events, but it doesn't tell you the details and it doesn't often tell you the consequences, which will only be learned by the event when it actually happens. And so... The reason I say that is it's really important not to read into the text of Scripture what is not there. So this passage says nothing about the nation-state of Israel. And it says nothing really about the second coming. It's not about the nation-state of Israel. And that is, it, it's important for us uh, to grasp that and to understand that. We must not come to Scripture and read into Scripture what is not there. We must not take away from Scripture. But, you know, Scripture tells us, for example, there's a prophecy about Antichrist. And there are lots of people who've said, well, Nero's the Antichrist, or Napoleon was the Antichrist, or Hitler was the Antichrist, or Stalin was the Antichrist, or Barack Obama was the Antichrist. Um, I even had a man ask me at a meeting once, do you think Richard Dawkins is the Antichrist? That's, oh, help me. You know, because the Bible doesn't identify. And there are people trying to work out this is when the end of the world is going to be and this is the end times now and everything else. And we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that kind of detail. But... We need to take what the Bible does say and apply it. And here we're told that Paul is revealing this mystery. Now God is the revealer of mysteries. Daniel 2.27. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.7. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. The mystery in Ephesians 3.9, the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past, was kept hidden in God who created all things. Colossians 1.26, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And what's that mystery? The mystery is Jesus Christ. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul in Romans is seeking to exalt Christ. He's not seeking to give us a secret history of the future. 
And by the way, that's the same also for Revelation. I find it fascinating that you get Christians who get more worked up about secondary issues in the Bible than they do about Jesus Christ. But not Paul. The mystery is Jesus. This is God's mystery. And that's the great privilege of being a Christian. What is God doing? God is working through Jesus Christ. And he says what God's plan is. That there has been a hardening of the Jews. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. And if you go back into Romans 9 you, and, and 10, you see what that hardening is. It's they became spiritually insensitive. And there was a veil over their hearts and minds, so they did not see the glory of Christ. Until, as he says, the full number of the Gentiles come in. Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nation. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and so he says all Israel will be saved that lots of controversy about that what does it mean so um, Calvin and others would say it means the whole church because in Galatians 6.16 the Israel of God refers to the whole church but here's the problem always take things in the context of the passage that they are in Israel in the rest of this passage does not refer to the whole church. It refers to Israel. It refers to the Jewish people. And why would Paul change for this one verse? That just doesn't really make any sense. In Romans, Israel clearly refers to ethnic Israel, to the Jewish people. And so what he's saying here is all Israel, he's not saying every single Jew will be saved. But it's an expression that's used in the, New, in the Old Testament a lot to just to refer to the, the group, if you like, Israel as a whole. It's not an individual universalism, but a kind of national universalism. And it's saying both Jews and both Gentiles are saved by Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say what saved means. Look at verse 26, because he brings together some quotes from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. The deliverer is Jesus. Probably referring to Christ's first coming. What will he do? He will atone for sin. What does that mean? He will establish his covenant. He will take away their sins. So what Paul is saying, he's not saying that Jews and Gentiles are saved in different ways. He's saying actually Jews are going to be saved in exactly the same way. As the Gentiles are. It's salvation from sin through faith in Christ. God's covenant will, with the Jews will be fulfilled. Not when they return to the land of Israel. But when many are saved. Now again. There's something that I think affects our culture in this. There are a lot of people in the Christian church. Who feel a certain level of guilt for the Holocaust. For the slaughter by in, in, in Europe of so many million, six million Jews. And so they say, well, do you know, this, this, this is, it, it, it's wrong to evangelize. And it, it's wrong to be anti-Jewish. It's wrong to be anti-Semitic. But people start saying, well, if you want to evangelize Jews, then you're anti-Jewish. Why are you doing this? And in the same way in terms of, of Muslims, one of the sad things that will happen out of the Christchurch massacre is this, is that people 
who disagree with Islam will be equated with the evil monstrosity who went and killed all those people. They'll say, well, you disagree with Islam. You're the same as him. It's the same thing. But it's not the same thing. I think it's N.T. Wright who points out that if you say the church should not evangelize the Jews, what you end up doing is creating a church that is anti-Semitic because it excludes the Jews. And likewise, with the Muslim uh, community, if we say, no, 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 we're not going to take the gospel to Muslims because they've got their own religion, we're not believing what the Bible says, and we're also not loving our Muslim brothers and sisters in that sense. I remember uh, many years ago going uh, when Anne Urquhart came here Gurnam Singh came here and being invited to go and meet with an imam who was concerned that we'd set up it wasn't Friends International in those days it was um, it was the Dundee project and it was designed to evangelize Muslims to bring the gospel to the 3,000 Asian people most of whom were Muslim in uh, Dundee at that time I remember meeting with the imam and there was a white Muslim who was who'd been a convert from Christianity ironically he'd become a convert because he thought that Christianity didn't teach about justice it only taught about a God of love and he wanted a God of justice as well but he'd become that he'd become a Muslim and he was really angry how dare you do this how dare you do that and the imam sat there in silence and then the imam asked me why are you doing this and I said you know what I'll tell you why we're doing it because we believe, we're not trying to convert Muslims because we believe we can't convert Muslims. That's where good Calvinist theology came in to help. I said, I don't believe that. I don't believe I can convert anybody. But we believe that Jesus is for every single human being. And we think it would be racist and wrong of us just to confine our preaching the gospel to people who are from a Western European background or a particular religious background. We believe Jesus is for everyone. We don't believe we can convert anyone, but we believe we should tell everyone about Jesus and let God do the work. And the man from Manchester started again and the imam held up his hands. No, 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 enough. He says, I agree with my brother David. It's only God who can convert. And I think he is being fair. I think... Let him tell people about Jesus if he wants to. And that was it. That's how, and that's how Friends International and everything came out of that because this imam also in the university spoke up for us as well. It's interesting that it's often non-Christians, um, Westerners, who say, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. They've got their religion. You've got yours. Just leave it. But actually, a real Muslim doesn't think like that. And a Christian doesn't think like that. And that's what Paul, I think, is saying here. He's saying, look, we don't have what they call two-covenant theology. There's one covenant for the Jews and there's one for the Gentiles. He's saying everyone, including the Jews, if they're going to be saved, they are saved through Jesus Christ. Let's just go on to verse 28, just to, um, to verse 32. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, and you've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. <clears throat> for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. 
What's that saying? Paul is saying, look, as far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews have become enemies. They throw you out of the synagogues, they persecute you. But as far as God's purpose, his overall election, no, no, they're still loved. Still the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Paul, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, went first of all, his methodology was to go first to the synagogue and to speak to the Jews. And I think that that, there is still a particular burden that we should have for the Jewish people and we should pray for the Jewish people. But he's saying, in in God's purpose, what happened was they were disobedient and you were blessed by that because as we saw before, what happens is Paul would go to a place, he would preach in the synagogue, they'd throw him out of the synagogue, he would then go to the Gentiles and many of the Gentiles would become believers. And he's saying that was, actually he's saying that was God's plan all along. But it's not finished there. It's not that God said, I'm finished with the Jews. Paul is making a prophecy here about a future where the majority of the Jewish people will believe and trust in Jesus. Now some people think that's being spread over a great period of time and other people think it might be a a great renewal, revival before uh, Christ returns. But what Paul is saying is God has not finished with the Jewish people yet. And notice how he talks about obedience and disobedience as well because he's saying that disobedience is really like a prison. I mean, the Old Testament ends with the Jews looking for a Messiah. The New Testament, the Gospels start with the Jews rejecting that Messiah. And it's, it's such a puzzlement. The Messiah has come. Why have they rejected? Well, without going through the whole argument again, it's just very simple. God has a great plan and purpose which will be fulfilled, Paul is saying. We don't know the times and the details. And that, that by the way, that upsets us. We, we like to know the plans, God's plans. We like to know the details. We become unhappy when things don't go to our timetable. We say, well, if God's going to bless, this will be this, this will be this, this will be this. But we don't really know the details. But we do know the planner. And that is really important. It's quite hard to live in an uncertain world if you are uncertain about what's going to happen. But you have to be uncertain about what's going to happen. We don't know. We do not know. We plan. You know, we say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. But the key thing, what Paul is emphasizing, is we know the planner. He's also teaching here that salvation is entirely of God. And he's teaching that the history of the world, the creation and the fall and civilizations trying to put things right, but then Christ comes and then Christ is going to return again in the second coming. The the Bible has this great grand view of history. We don't. We have human views of history which are very, very limited. There are people today who believe, well, human history is we're always getting better. No, we're not. We're not always getting better. We do something wonderful like invent the internet and it's absolutely fantastic. 
and the many great things it can be used for. And yet a human being straps a camera to himself and broadcasts himself live shooting children and women. That's what we do. We split the atom, which could create enormous energy. And what do we do? We create bombs out of it. You know, there's nothing that human beings will invent which we cannot distort. We're not, we're not getting better. And we're not sliding into, oh, things are just always going to get worse. I mean, history goes in cycles, it seems. But we're saying that God knows and God has a purpose and a plan. And part of what Paul's saying here, I think, as well, is things are not always what they seem. It seems as though God's plan is failing. So God chose Israel and blessed Israel. And what happens? The Romans take over Israel. And you think, and they crush the Jewish people. And you think, how? how? The Jewish leaders are looking for a Messiah who's going to come and rescue them from the Romans. And instead a Messiah comes who dies on the cross. You say, well, how's that bringing salvation? Because he died on the cross for people's sins. And lo and behold, the Roman Empire became the means by which Christianity spread because there were all these Roman roads. There was the Latin language and the Greek language, which were the the common languages of civilized people at that time. It's like a brilliant plan, but no one would think of that. There was the destruction of Jerusalem. And the disciples, many of whom, thousands of whom are being converted in Jerusalem, they, they fled the city in the, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. We have enough reliable sources that say that the, the, the Christian Jews were warned in a dream and they left and they scattered and they went everywhere over the Roman Empire. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel. And that is telling us that there's nothing hopeless as far as God is concerned. Lloyd-Jones says this, there's no such thing as a hopeless case where God is concerned. It takes the power of God to save anybody and therefore the power of God can save anybody. Thank God there is no such thing as a hopeless case. The power of God is a final answer to all such pessimism and hopelessness. What Paul is really saying here is he's saying, God is sovereign. God gave us the gospel and You shouldn't be pessimistic about the Jewish people and you shouldn't be pessimistic about the Gentiles and we shouldn't be pessimistic about the gospel working and saving people. Stop going by just what you see and go by what you hear, what God tells you. And so he goes on to verse 33 with this great doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So we go from the depths of despair to the depths of God and the wisdom and knowledge of God. The depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Wisdom says Augustine, is the contemplation of eternal things. Knowledge is temporal things. Wisdom, biblically, is normally the ability to deal with a situation. I'm sure, uh, again, I'm not making a political point, I'm sure that our Prime Minister, Theresa May, has a lot of knowledge, and lots of people who are willing to give her knowledge. uh, What she needs is wisdom. And actually, what all our parliamentarians need is wisdom. And what would be a great idea is if someone put forward a motion or said something, look, let's, let's just cancel everything for a day and have a day of prayer and pray about the way ahead. Um, I think that would just be laughed out of Parliament, but 
We need, they need wisdom. We need wisdom. But he's saying here, God has wisdom and God has knowledge. God is omniscient. God knows everything. There is nothing that God does not know. And therefore, God's plan caters for every eventuality in every situation. You can imagine right now that various people, maybe the EU people and so on in this mess in the country at the moment, they're sitting thinking, right, now if this happens, then we'll do this, and if this happens, we'll do that, and then this might happen, and we think they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. And I, you know, you read the people who are making inverted commas prophecies about what's going to happen next week, and you know that when you read it, at the end of next week, most of them will have been wrong, and the ones who are right won't be right the week after that. But God's not like that. Nothing takes God by surprise. Do you not know? Have you not heard, Lord? Does anything surprise God? No. And that should be a security for us. God knows everything. We are finite and we are limited. With all our knowledge, we are only touching the fringes. Now we reverse that. So in our culture, we'll say, you'll get people who say, well, I know a lot about science, or I've got a degree in this, and the more educated you are, the less likely to, you are to believe in God, which only shows the folly of that kind of education then. It's not true, but if it were true, I, a humble awareness of knowledge would make you realize, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. One of the, the men I, I admire is a guy called Jordan Peterson, who's a clinical psychologist from Canada, and um, he's a remarkably clever man, and he's got a lot of insight and wisdom, but different things. He's not a Christian, um, and he says a lot of good things. But sometimes I see on his face, so many people look to him, the burden of being savior to so many young men, and he can't cope with it. He doesn't want to be it, but he's perceived as that. He doesn't know everything, but God knows everything. The atheist thinks that he's an atheist because he knows more, but he actually knows less. We know that wisdom is hidden in Christ. We know that according to Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the proclamation of the gospel, through our praise, Angels and demons are being shown the purpose and plan of God. Angels long to look in these, into these things. And then God comes along and he chooses a bunch of people like us. And suddenly they, they praise, they, they, they are amazed, they are, they are, they're astounded as Paul is here. And he breaks in, into praise. Sometimes we ask about the plan. So he quotes here from Job and he quotes from Isaiah, both of whom had faced enormous difficulties. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? We cannot teach or tell God anything. It would be absurd to say that we know the mind of God. Stephen Hawking in his book on the brief history of time talked about if we could work out what happened at the beginning of the universe, then we would know the mind of God. No, we wouldn't. It's only the beginning. We wouldn't. And so we don't know 
God's mind. We're not a divine mind reader. And, and sometimes we forget that. We have an arrogance which says, well, if I can't work it out, then it can't be true. Or I'm not going to believe it. But we need to understand that, that we just, it's like you've got a four-year-old child who's trying to, I don't know, teach a PhD in maths how to do maths. Well, it's just much worse than that when we tell God how he should behave or how things should be. That's what it says here. Who has been God's counselor? Who are you and who am I to tell the Lord what he should and should not be doing? Or his creditor. You don't go to God and present him with a bill and say, you owe me for this. This happened, this happened, this happened, you owe me. No. Paul says we can't do that because he is God and we are not. God acts in a way that we often do not understand. I mean, does this make sense? He sent his son to the palace. Not to the palace, but to the stable. He didn't call the philosophers. God's strategy for evangelism, you know, forgive me saying this, but I think most of the apostles and Jesus would be thrown out of most even evangelical strategy movements because they just got it so wrong. This is crazy. Look what they did. He didn't call the philosophers, but he called fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes. He chose the weak things of this world, the despised. It was in a place like Corinth, which was a rotten Scumdy, if you want to put it that way. Corinthian seaport. And Athens, the gospel didn't work too well to start with. You know, Paul went and preached there. It didn't have too much of an effect. Why? Because he is God and salvation is all of him. And we should not try to understand and just work it all out because that shows there's something radically wrong with us and arrogance about us. Again, forgive me for quoting Lloyd-Jones, he says this, Thank God the gospel is entirely unlike everything that man has ever thought of. It is something that man cannot understand, he cannot receive, he cannot grasp, he cannot trace or track it out. It turns him upside down, it shocks him, it amazes him. Thank God for it. It is because it is like that that it holds out a hope for everybody. You can take this gospel to the heart of Africa... You do not ask for a dialogue there, do you? The poor man brought up there is unlikely to have a dialogue with you, but you know that poor man is in exactly the same position as your great philosopher in London or your great scientist, wherever he may happen to live, in exactly the same position. The gospel is good news for all, and especially good news for those who are humble and for those who are poor and for those who know they cannot tell God what he should do or be like. Calvin, whenever then we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, let a bridle always be set on our thoughts and tongue so that after having spoken soberly and within the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. In other words, we say we know this and we know this and we know this and we are utterly amazed at who God is. Many times I've sat here and and heard Sinclair open up the Bible, goes to a passage, I say, I know that passage. And I think I'll be bored. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, the first five, ten minutes, I'm going, uh-huh, when are you going to get to it? And then, bang. And he's teaching about God, and he's teaching, it's wonderful. And you just want to, you know, in Presbyterian terms, lift your hands. 
and just praise the Lord because, and it's not, you know, I'm not looking and thinking, oh wow, Singler's a great preacher. I'm thinking, what a great God. I don't even think what a great sermon. You think what a great God. And that's what Paul has done here. Because he says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. And he says, God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. And everything is for God. Confronted with a sovereign and wise God, our response should only be Paul's. That God is the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. To him be the glory forever. And that comes back to where we came in with people who are proud because of their theology. Uh-uh. Yeah, you haven't got theology, good theology, if it makes you proud. Because good theology makes you fall on your knees and worship. Our theology and our, what we call our doxology, our praise, go together. Worship without theology will degenerate into idolatry. That's why we need scripture. But theology without doxology, theology without praise, what is that? That's like blasphemy. God speaks to our minds, but through our minds he speaks to our hearts so that we obey and to our wills. That's the order. We see the truth and we give glory. We are moved to worship, praise, and adoration. I think that's where so many of us get it wrong in terms of church. We think we're going to go to church and we're going to go and praise. And, you know, it's the praise that's really important. I really like that song. I like that tune. Uh, you know, we're going to do this. And I'm going to praise God. No, no. Praise is not what we sing. That's part of it. But you, you don't work yourself up by the music or, or anything like that. But then you go to some churches where they've got you know, good Bible teaching and it's clear and it's concise and it's biblical and sometimes it's like they're reading a commentary. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. Because when we're hearing about God and when we're hearing about Jesus, it should really move us. It really should. We cry out amen. We can hardly contain ourselves. We cry glory. Paul says, I'm in tears. I'm, I'm so distressed about my own people. What is God doing? And he says, this is what God is doing. This is the gospel. God has blessed the Jewish people. The Jewish people have rejected him. So God blesses the Gentiles. But that's so he can bless the Jewish people again. And Paul said, I can't cope with this. This is too wonderful. Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And our worship is so pathetic and poor because we're saying, well, God doesn't really know and he hadn't realized what's happening and this has happened in my life and this has happened to me personally and this is happening in the world and this is happening in the church and oh, oh, it's all so terrible. Or we may go, this really good thing has happened in the church, this really good thing has happened in the world and oh, it's all so wonderful. And we forget that it's about God and it's about Jesus and when you grasp that, you are you're so close to real worship. That's why it's so important to be taught from God's word, but to respond, to, to, to listen with an open heart and an open ear and an open mind. For from him and through him and to him, are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray. We bless you, Lord, that this just amazing grace, this amazing plan, that this, we're amazed that we think that in our wisdom we can tell you what to do or what would be better. Or that sometimes we listen to the evil one who says that you are not good. And yet even when the apostle Paul was so burdened for his own people, yet he could see your goodness and your glory being revealed even in the midst of all the troubles of oppression and troubles within the church and troubles in his own life. And we pray that would be true for us. And may it be that your name would be lifted up in this place and amongst us as we worship you. And as we are taught from your word, grant, O God, that we would cry out glory in your name. Amen. Let's stand and uh, sing, finishing. Glory be to God, the Father. To God be the glory, rather. Sorry, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise and please remain standing for the benediction.